0: get access to exclusive content and become part of the team you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash that's patreo dot com hey everyone i'm rod roddenberry and you're listening to trek fm
1: these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to literary treks our dedicated books and comic show here on the network i'm your host matthew rushing and with me as he is always is dan gunther dan how are you doing this evening
0: oh matthew doing really well uh the weather here has taken a wonderful turn it's hot for once which is really nice (laughs) uh yeah that's shocking (laughs) having a great evening uh, enjoying this warm northern Alberta weather how often do you get to say that that is
1: true that's great yeah here it's actually chilly and rainy so um, (laughs) you know kind of classic spring weather here but uh, well we're not here to talk weather Um, we're here to talk some Star Trek and we have a fantastic show for everyone with Dave Gallanter going to be talking the crisis consciousness but before we get to that Dan Um, We do have some fun news to talk about.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, Another cover reveal this week, which is really exciting. Uh, I was kind of expecting we'd get the next Voyager novel, uh, but they've kind of skipped over that and given us the cover for the next uh, Star Trek Titan novel by James Swallow, and that one is Sight Unseen. So we're pretty excited about that one. Well, what do you think
1: of this cover? Because one, it does harken back to the Titan series. Like we're finally back to the Titan series covers with the, you know, the word Titan on the side Mm -hmm. and um, everything like that. So what do you think of this one?
0: Well, I am really glad they're sticking with that original motif. You know, I mean, it's not the biggest concern in the world, but it's nice when your novels all match on the shelf and that kind of thing. And I've always really liked this kind of stylistic Titan design and of course, the ship they're using, the, the model they're using for the Titan is is just absolutely gorgeous. I don't have a lot bad to say about this cover. It would be kind of nice to get some, you know, realistic color on that. But uh, stylistically looking, looks gorgeous. And, you know, we get a beautiful shot of this amazing ship. So I, I have very little to complain about here.
1: Well, and it looks um, exciting for the sense that there's this wreckage in front of it. And so it leaves you wondering what in the heck is going on with this Titan book here. And I- I'm really excited about that. And-, and Dan, what was also nice
0: is that they did release um, the full blurb for this as well. Hmm. Yeah, so... The blurb sounds pretty exciting here. We've got, In the wake of political upheaval across the United Federation of Planets, Admiral William Riker and the crew of the USS Titan find themselves in uncertain waters as roles aboard the ship change to reflect a new mandate and a new mission. On orders from Starfleet, Titan sets out toward the edge of Federation space to tackle its latest latest assignment to work with an alien species known as the Dynak, who are taking their first steps into the galaxy at large as a newly warp-capable civilization. But when disaster befalls the Dynak, the Titan crew discovers they have unknowingly drawn the attention of a deadly, merciless enemy, a nightmare from Riker's past lurking in the darkness. Friendships will be tested to the limit as familiar faces and new allies must risk everything in a fight against an unstoppable invader, or a horrific threat will be unleashed on the galaxy. Sounds pretty exciting.
1: Like every Tuesday, it's another (laughs) horrific threat unleashed on the galaxy. Ah,
0: man, you'd think you could just catch a break. Yeah, and it looks like the Titan will in fact be the only ship in range, so... It's shocking!
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, no, this—we're uh, kidding. This sounds fantastic, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, no, I, absolutely. I, I don't think I've ever been let down by a James Swallow novel, so. Um, and the best part about it is it means we get to talk to James on the show, oh, which yeah. I
0: couldn't be more excited about. <laughs> Definitely. No, his novels have never disappointed me. And I, I have to say, especially his Titan novels, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Titan yeah. entry in the fall for one was just an incredible uh, novel. It really was. I yeah, love that Poison Chalice,
1: um, Synthesist is probably... Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it may be my favorite Titan novel.
0: If not, it's it's at least top two or three for yeah. me, for sure. So,
1: this is yeah, yeah, This is all sufficiently exciting, and I just can't wait till this come out. This will come out September 29th, and so everybody mark your calendars because you're going to be wanting to pick this up. Um, now, we did have the idea that we might cover some of the comics that came out as of today's recording date. But uh, we want to go ahead and just get to the interview with you guys. And so um, we're going to jump into that right now. Well, Dan, I am just so excited this week because I just love it when we get to have an author on the show. And it has been a while, I feel like, since we've, we've been able to have somebody on. And we had a fantastic new TOS book come out, Crisis of Consciousness. And I'm so excited to have Dave Gallanter with us. Dave, welcome to Literary Treks. How's it going?
2: Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you inviting me, and it's, it's really uh, uh, quite humbling to, to hear the good reviews that, that I've gotten here and there.
0: Well, we're really excited to have you on because, yes, uh, this novel was very excellent, and yeah, it's really a pleasure to have you here on the show.
2: <laughs> that, thanks for having me. And thanks for reading it, yeah, so that
0: uh, I can actually discuss it and not say, well, I can't
2: really tell you anything about it.
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, No holds barred on spoilers in this one. Yeah, so so what's
2: the (laughs) book about, again? Um, Uh, There's uh, The Enterprise. Oh, okay, okay, great, great.
1: (laughs) Well, um, one of the things that I love getting to do the first time that we have an author on the show is just kind of get your Star Trek story and you know how it was for you that you found star trek um hopefully fell in love with it obviously you're writing the books and um do you have a favorite series or favorite characters
2: yeah i think uh the original series is my favorite series um although um i have enjoyed at times all of them although i have to say uh i don't know if this is a consensus or not um i found uh next gen to uh start off slowly and really um, you, you ended up falling in love with the characters eventually on Next Gen. Um, I think Deep Space Nine was probably the most intriguing and maybe even the most well-written um, in comparison to of the modern series. Um, I thought Voyager kind of slipped downhill and I think Enterprise uh, was gone before it found a lot of its steam. Um, which is disappointing. And part of that, actually, I think really is just, um, I think people had gotten Trek for so long, um, they might have been a, a little burned out by it. Um, and I had some problems with some of their uh, their techniques. with Ener- I think calling it Enterprise instead of Star Trek Enterprise, I thought was a mistake. It was like they tr- were trying to not be Star Trek, which they were so clearly Star Trek. Um so it didn't make any sense to me. Um so so the original series is definitely my favorite and if I had to go for a favorite character, I don't know, I go back and forth between believe it or not, um McCoy and uh, and Spock. Oh, excellent. Who, uh, I love writing.
1: McCoy is probably my favorite Star Trek character as well. So I can. Yeah, I'm
0: kind of on the same page there. I I feel like as a kid, Spock was my favorite, and then McCoy, kind of in retrospect as I grew up, it's like, I really love this character, yeah.
2: By the way, I I got into it because my mother introduced me to Star Trek at probably the age of, I'm going to say, five or six. (laughs) My mother was a big science fiction fan, and so anything, whether it was... Space nineteen ninety nine or Star Trek, or what have you that was you know on during that time, um, she liked to watch, and so i would uh, I would always uh, watch with her. So uh, I used to actually pretend that in search of the the series with Leonard Nimoy, um, was Mr. Spock giving me report <laughs> as, as Captain
0: Kirk? Oh, that's great. I love it.
1: <laughs> that is really funny. One of the things that, you know, as a, you know, a Star Trek author, I always wonder for you guys, because we've had so many hours of original series characters and then so many books. I I, I can't even, I'd have to look it up, but it feels like we've had hundreds and hundreds of books with TOS characters at this point. Um, tell us about coming up with this this story, for the crew of the enterprise where did it come from for you and what were some of your inspirations for diving into these characters once again
2: well troublesome minds was such a book that it left me with as if i i didn't quite finish i'd come up with troublesome minds as an idea that the, the idea was what pushes spock toward colin um and I thought, after it was done, I really enjoyed the book. I, I really enjoyed writing it. I thought, rarely do I think my work is that great. I think I'm kind of okay. But there were certain scenes in that book that I thought were really good. Um, and by the way, I never give myself more than four out of five stars or <laughs> eight out of ten or whatever. Um, I just, I can't. It doesn't, because I see all the little flaws, things I'd like to change as I, as I read the manuscript after it's come out and been published i see things i want to change again um but i thought you know i didn't take it another step farther um and i thought maybe i'll revisit that someday maybe i won't and then i sort of got the opportunity i did not plan to do that in this book but as i was plotting it i thought maybe this is the opportunity to go one step farther and explain a little bit more because I don't think there's one thing that would have led Spock to make that decision. And I think, I don't really want to reference this episode, but just off the top of my head, Plato's stepchildren. Mm-hmm.
1: Hey, that was my very first episode pushed, of Star Trek.
2: It was, is that yeah. right? <laughs> might have pushed him to that sort of, you know, because that was a leave out the bad stuff part of it. But, you know, that sort of experience might have also led him to that because there was such a great amount of humiliation in it and um, what was going on for him. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I think Spock feels humiliation a lot actually um, because he has a, a, a picture in his head of how he's supposed to be imposed on him sort of by his planet, sort of by his father And he never quite meets up to it. And I think that's a problem for him. And while I don't come out and say that exactly in this book, at the end of the book, he's ashamed for two things. One, he's ashamed that he uh, has has these feelings. Well, he's ashamed of what he's done, because he thinks it doesn't really meet his moral code, and maybe he could have done something else. But he's also ashamed that he has a feeling about that. Uh, He's struggling with righteous indignation at himself but that's a feeling. Yeah. (laughs) So even him beating himself up about what he thinks he's done wrong is an emotion. So he's sort of in a no win situation there. Um, I see. And I actually wonder how much I conveyed that. I'm not sure. Um, But the book was getting my problem because I, I write Spartanly sometimes in my text. I don't, I try to let dialogue move the plot and things like that. Um, I don't want to be six pages inside someone's head. My fear is the the reader is going to put that down because ultimately they're reading a television show. Um, And I think uh, I don't, I, I don't know if people go into it expecting that they're going to read a television show, but that's the, that's the kind of book I like to produce. That's why the end of every chapter, sometimes the end of a scene is almost a commercial break that's what I go for so that you can put it down and say, okay, I'm at the end of that chapter. That's like pausing it between, you know, uh, between commercials.
0: You can almost hear the dramatic music cue as it goes out kind of thing. That's yeah. what I
2: try to do. Um, and, uh, sometimes I'm able to do that and sometimes I'm not, but my, my, my fear is, is that if I go into six or seven pages of just internal monologue with something that I'm going to lose, I'm going to lose that, uh, that pacing. I mean, it's the pacing I go for. Um, I, I try to make it really seem like somebody's watching a, a, a two hour episode or something.
0: Yeah. This novel definitely had that feel to me. I, I really felt like, uh, like you say, like it was really a television episode and these characters were, you know, the characters that I see in those three seasons of star Trek. And I think you were able to really write that cast really, really well. And really bring those voices out. Um,
2: well, I, I hear them in my head, and I've watched them for the last forty years. <laughs> so <laughs> I, it's I'm I'm cheating because I've done way too much research. Hey, that's okay. Uh, we all have. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think also the other thing is this is I've uh, once in a Star Trek story I think I've not started with the main characters um, because the television show almost never started with someone who wasn't a main character um and so i I really sort of strive for i expect when people pick up a star trek novel they're looking to to read about kirk spock and mccoy and to a lesser degree some of the others um and by the way there my intention was to write to have this take place after troublesome minds um and i actually I had never placed Troublesome Minds in a time period other than in my head. In my head, I thought it was maybe fourth season or something like that um, that we didn't see. Um, But then uh, the editor's idea, um, Margaret Clark suggested adding Carolyn Palamas, which I thought was an an awesome idea. And I loved it. And she was spot on to do it um, because it added a cool little layer that we never saw. And so then I thought, okay, well, Troublesome Minds took place before that then because I do want them to dovetail. And I gave a hint that he I couldn't mention troublesome minds specifically. Um but I actually had Spock saying that he's been part of a a collective sort of mind at one point and that it was troublesome. So I hope people got that. Hint. I liked that. That yeah, was really I, nice. I loved
0: that little bit of hint. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know you never know what someone's going to notice and someone won't. Someone actually was it I don't know who it was, whose review I read, but somebody picked up on me Sort of alluding to the Ferengi, because um, I mentioned somebody cheating someone who had big ears.
0: <laughs> yeah, I caught that too. That was excellent. <laughs> yeah, no, your your reference to Troublesome Minds. I remember reading it and thinking, like, is he talking about? And then you said Troublesome, yeah. and I went, Ah, yeah. <laughs> that was perfect.
2: <laughs> and, and you know what? I don't like referencing. Um, a lot of previous episodes or things like that. And not because I think it's wrong or bad, but just again, because I'm generally looking to make it seem like you're watching one of the episodes and they never did that for the most part. I mean, I guess there was a couple of times when they did, Um, but, but it was fairly rare. So I just, as a matter of style, try not to do it.
1: Yeah. I think that that really is something about the book that captured that TOS feel because the show is, so much of an anthology a lot of the times and like you said it's it seems rare that they'll directly reference something that happened in an episode beforehand
2: yeah and i think i think that's kind of special to the original series mm-hmm. because certainly the later series had uh uh growing arcs especially later on i mean my gosh deep space nine was very uh arc oriented um Voyager a bit less so because they were, they had an easy again, button. traveling. And Enterprise was certainly very arc-oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, writing those books, you would want to be sort of more uh, inter interweaving. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I don't think um, the original series lends itself to it as much, just from a nostalgia point of yeah. view.
1: Yeah, But I think that is what leads a... a good TOS book to feel like the original series. And so I think your your idea nails that. And that's good. Like you said, that's kind of what we expect when we pick that up because we know it's taking place sometime within the first five-year mission. So right. it should feel like the rest of the show. Um, and if you reference... That was the goal. Yeah, if you reference too much, you might lose that.
2: The story itself came from actually a next generation idea that Greg Broder and I had sort of had a long time ago, but uh, I guess either we didn't pitch or we didn't sell it or what have you, which was different. It was about a Vulcan um, who uh, I guess wanted revenge against someone and so kept shifting his Katra into different people so that he could sort of carry out his revenge. So it was one that was supposed to sort of span you know, from Toss to TNG um, oh, wow. uh, at, at some point. Um, and that developed into this because what fascinated me about that was what happens if you live so long, you know, through this method um, that you've totally warped your, your really your, your, what reality is. You're so invested in the past because you lived it that you're unable to move on. And then it developed into, okay, what if this person is really a culture who's done that, and so on and so forth. And that's how it eventually became the uh, Keynesians. I guess that's how it's pronounced. I actually don't know how certain things are pronounced when I'm, when I'm typing them. Um, <laughs> that's great. I can say that it is the Mabas, and uh, the, the element that they were trying to create was the Nahubas. And those are, those are horrible uh, things that I made up from words I used to say to my cat. Oh, nice!
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great.
2: All my cats are in the book. Oh, well, that's um, good. Yeah, uh, I have a cat named Pip, so he became Pippinge. I'm probably ruining the uh, the the whole idea of the book now. Um, I have a a cat named Gizmo uh, who became President Moberte. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very strange person. That is really funny, though. <laughs> no, that's crazy. Now,
1: like, now, all I'm picturing is that the Kinesians look like cats instead of the way you describe them. <laughs> no, it was. So they're more like Kadians. No, uh, the Mabas yeah. were the ones who were so.
2: uh, named after cats. Um, Jatan didn't have, that was just a made up name. Um, you know, it's funny. You want to st- do something that's a little bit alien, but that somebody can pronounce. Mm-hmm. Because I know when I come up to. Uh, a word in a book, a name in a book that I can't pronounce because it's so alien, I end up just making up something and inserting it there every time I see that word. So if something is I just might change it to Bob in my head and say Bob every time if I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. So I try to find something that somebody will be able to put syllables to that are human. I think
1: that is a good lesson for all sci-fi writers because I run up against that as well, because it's really tough sometimes (laughs) to figure out what all these Y's and Z's mean in a alien name.
0: (laughs) Yeah. There's just a string of consonants and apostrophes. (laughs) What do I make of that? (laughs) Well,
2: and and, you know, we do that anyway with uh, foreign cities. I I mean, we're doing it less now, um, but Beijing used to be peking. (laughs) I mean, because we could sort of handle it. Um, I'm from Michigan. The, the Ojibwe Indians there used to be the Chippewa because we could sort of wrap our mouths around Chippewa as opposed to what it it should be called. And probably by saying Ojibwe, I'm probably not even getting it right still. Um, But uh, uh, yeah, I I try not to make the, uh, the reader struggle too much. And again, a lot of those things are just because i hate doing it when i'm reading <laughs> so i'm trying to i'm trying to save uh, save people the same pain that i end up having
0: that's definitely appreciated yeah. for sure <laughs> um, actually the the name of the the element you're coming up with um i yeah i really like that because it felt evil and foreboding like i was thinking like anubis or uh oh there was another I almost thought of hubris
1: as well yes that was it like yeah so that it it, it was very is that you wait you're holding up your remote is uh, is
2: this is this is what i i'm holding up my my tivo remote uh, this is what i generally to my wife used to say i don't do it anymore because i put it in the book uh so now it's sort of ruined for that but i would say pass me the hubis <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> it's a tivo <laughs> then, remote folks like what <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's great, but
2: you know, just because I couldn't think of the word one time, so I just said the the who the the the, the hubus, um, and I ended up sa- again saying that word to my cat sometimes, um, uh, both Mabas and Hubus, um, and uh, somehow they got in the book, which is uh, again, I'm a very strange person, and we have four cats. Well, there you go. Well, s-
0: strange people apparently make very good Star Trek novel writers, so <laughs> <laughs> it works out well. <laughs>
2: I've, I, uh, you know, I try, it's funny. Um, I think there are so many other better writers out there than me, at least as far as star Trek is concerned. You know, you look at, you look at Dave Mack and Kirsten Beyer and, and Ward and Dilmore, and the, too many to mention even. Um, and, uh, I, I don't read the novels religiously, but whenever I end up picking one of their books, I'm like, wow, oh, I, I need to improve so I could do that more. Um, and yet what the truth is, we've all got different styles yeah. and, and, I don't, I think if I tried to write like, like one of those, it would come off horribly. I can only just sort of do what I do and they do what they do. Um, But there's so many talented people um, that are writing Star Trek novels. It's why I end up doing one only every so often um, is uh, I, you know, I don't, I'm not there pitching all the time. I pitch when I think I have a good enough story to pitch um, because uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to do a bad job at it and, there are so many good ones that are so prolific. Greg Cox. I mean, the, the list could go on and on.
0: Well, we're really lucky, really, to have all these writers doing great Star Trek. And I definitely count you among them because these are excellent.
2: <laughs> um, I was actually taught to write sort of by Diane Carey. Oh, that's um, awesome. Yeah. Uh, who, uh, who doesn't do Star Trek anymore. Um, and in fact, I didn't read a lot of her later Star Trek novels just because I didn't want to be influenced by her style once i was getting one of my own um but uh, she taught me uh, how to write um and then eventually i found my own style and i used to work with her husband greg Broder, and so he taught me how to plot
1: that's really cool although
2: every every book i've done ever since without him i at least we go to lunch and i tell him the story and see if he has um you know an idea to to push me in one direction or another. And usually he does. And so it's worth the it's worth the burger I'm buying him. Mm, good burgers
1: too. There you go. How <laughs> can it go wrong? For you um with writing the cast, you know, um there again, we've had so many TOS books with so many adventures. What's your process of writing them? Especially and I feel, you know, here with Crisis of Consciousness not only are you nailing the characterization, but I feel like you all are bringing something new. As as you were talking about, you were trying to figure out how to write Spock to colonar. Like, why would he choose this? What would be some of the things that would help him get there? Um, so, what's your process for writing these characters and hopefully trying to bring something that
2: we haven't seen before? I, I think it's it's a little, it's there's two things. Um, it's more difficult with Kirk because he's so wears his heart on his sleeve. You, You know what he's thinking just sort of by watching him on the show. And so he's not difficult to decipher per se, but Spock, because he's so guarded, you can imagine a lot of different things that must be going on in that head. And so that's, uh, in a way easier and a way just more, because there's more fodder there. I can actually think about him. Hmm, what's he really thinking? You can do it a little bit with Kirk, but he has far, I mean, Kirk is, I don't want to call him one note, but he's a starship captain. He's supposed to be a starship captain. Um, and he knows it and he feels it in his bones. Um, your first best destiny spot called it in, uh, in Star Trek II. Um, so everybody sort of knows it. I, don't, I think some of the other characters, uh, Spock and McCoy to a lesser degree, um, I'm not sure they know what they're necessarily supposed to be. I think they struggle with it a bit more. So there's more fodder there to play with the idea of, hey, what, what should they be? Um, I wrote a short story um, in the Mere Anarchy series that was just basically a, a Kirk and McCoy buddy movie. And it was uh, before... The the motion picture, but after the end of the series, um, where Kirk was an admiral and he was very itching to sort of get his hands dirty again, and uh, he gets McCoy and he finds McCoy in in Kentucky, and where tracks him down, and um, you know McCoy at that point is like, I don't want any part of this anymore, (laughs) Um, because I think McCoy there uh, had some conflict about. uh, uh, I mean, you see that in the motion picture. He's not, they had to draft him. Um, I made air quotes or bunny ears when I said draft. Dink, dink. Um, And uh, so I think there's just more fodder for for some of the other characters that you can speculate who are a little less uh, obvious with their motivations. Um, As for um, how I, you know, a a lot, the other thing is, it's very often... Wouldn't it be cool if and I think to myself, wouldn't it be cool if this happened or that happened? So I try to make you know any story I'm telling a this is I think it would be cool if we saw this. Um, I thought it would be really interesting. Um, Troublesome minds came about. well, it didn't come about, but it was the idea was um, eventually, what if there was someone who was telepathic to the point where it was a defense mechanism? And they did not realize they were controlling you. Uh, I mean, there's a character who is, I mean, it's, it's, it's pathos. It's, he doesn't know he's bad. I mean, you felt sorry for Burles, hopefully, because he didn't understand what he was doing to people. And yet like a child that everybody says, Oh yes, I agree with you. He could never really grow up because no one around him could actually tell him anything. And yet he didn't know he was being, you know, the the kid who was sending people to the cornfield. That character from Twilight Zone knew he was being a little brat. Well, Burles has no idea because everybody's nice to him. Uh, Nobody's afraid of him. Everybody loves him. Um, And so uh, uh, I guess part of, uh, for this one, and this was just a seed that I didn't really do much with because it's so obvious to me, it's hard to, uh, articulate negatives against it. You know, we have a problem with uh, Israel and Palestine and a lot of people who say, well, this was my ancient land. No, it was my ancient land. Well, here are two cultures fighting over this rock, neither of which them actually own it. It, it the, the Keynesians found it. The Mabas found it. But they both say it's theirs. And so only slightly do I actually deal with, well, who's actually, whose is it? Well, it's nobody's. Just live in peace, um, which is what the Federation, of course, you know, would suggest and say. Um, and then I realized, you know what? The book really isn't about that. Um, it's it's not enough to make it about that. And that's when the, I don't even know how to pronounce it, the Santique, I guess. Um, it just looked cool on the page. The, the bad guys who will not be named, um, who don't even exist anymore. <laughs> um, uh, uh, it, I, I realized I needed... Uh, I needed a reason that both of these peoples had been displaced and that developed into the story about the Santique. I think someone made a someone made a comment that they didn't like uh, the last battle with the, the people who ended up conquering the Saint-Tique, um because they felt it sort of was tacked on, which is a valid criticism about that in the book uh, because in, an, in a way it was. I didn't intend to ever have that battle. Uh, but when I got there, I realized it was really anticlimactic if they just find that the conquerors are gone and they go about their business. It seemed like a really dull note. Um, So we ended up adding in, we, the Royal, we ended up uh, adding in that, that, that battle. um, Just because not everything is uh, I didn't want it to be anticlimactic is one word. I didn't want it to be anticlimactic. I also guess I didn't want it to be too easy for Kirk. Um, Where he would then just go and say, hey, um, you know, they're not even there. Nobody's there. So forget it. And then how do I explain why they were, you know, why why the Keynesians were looking from afar and seeing so much activity? So why would they trust Kirk? Why would they believe him? So I had to go about it another way.
1: Yeah, I think that actually I don't know works what your well. question
2: was anymore, or whether I answered. No, it or not. I think
1: that works really well. Um, one of the things that we uh, Dan and I both noticed about the book is you really had Kirk and Spock and, and even in some ways McCoy all working together in the story, and yet they're they're so much of the book in different places, and I I really liked the fact that these people can kind of work in concert together even though they're not there. And then you had the great line of Kirk asking WWJK, what would Kirk do? Uh, what would Jim yeah, Kirk do? Sp- was Spock just asking so that. great. But
2: Kirk, Kirk was asking what would Spock do yeah. in a lot of ways? Cause he was trying to approach it from an analytical point of view. Cause his, his main analyst wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And Spock was thrown into the cowboy diplomacy sort of way. And, and, um, And Kirk actually expected to be the one who would maybe find himself on the Keynesian ship. He was going to use himself as a bargaining chip. Um, And then being Spock that was taken. And in fact, um, as I, as I, as I went through the story, I thought, you know, it's a little bit convenient that Spock was taken and Spock was needed by them. So I ended up having the Keynesians be a little smarter and um know that uh, some of this was going to happen and that they wanted spock um because you have to imagine once they found out about the federation they would be fascinated with vulcans yeah yeah i mean they they'd have to be um because they they know that they are sort of from that line uh, i mean that would that would fascinate us so um of course they're so they're such a derivative now um, through through their, I, it's not even natural selection, I guess, because just to survive, they had to become so different. And I assumed that they were from the time before Serac. They didn't know anything about mm-hmm. that. Um, and 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 very sort of vicious people, um, ancient Vulcans. And and you see the remnants of that, in the Romulans too. So um, uh, certainly certainly wanted to tell a story where Kirk and Spock were, were trying to figure out what the other would do. And uh, I think they actually pulled it off rather, rather nicely. And really not even by thinking what would the other person do so much as um, uh, finding in themselves what they, what they would be able to do. Sometimes you rely on someone too much and forget that you can do the mm-hmm. job yourself. Yeah. And both of them are really really rather skilled. They're both Starfleet officers, you know, Spock may not want to command and be in that decision-making position, but he can be. Um, and I think we've, I mean, he's a commander on a starship. He's supposed to be in command when Kirk isn't. So he definitely has the chops. Well, what we
1: need then is some merchandise to go with the books so we can get the <laughs> WWKD and the WWSD bracelets and you get one <laughs> of them depending on the, you know, with the book, it's a, it's a pr- surprise, you know, um, there's,
2: there's no money in that for me. Yeah. So. <laughs> with <have> to, uh...
1: <laughs> I think that's a great point though, because one of the things I loved about the book was, was Kurt kind of getting in touch with that side that you don't see a lot, that he is an analytical theater. He is a very smart person. Um, and that's why he can come up with all these brilliant ideas on the fly because he has that gut instinct that Spock says he he himself doesn't have and then Spock is kind of at the same time realizing there's parts of Kirk in him like those those he has access to them it just troubles him sometimes to use them because he's a Vulcan and he shouldn't he should be completely analytical about the situation and unfeeling about it and
2: not trust his quote unquote gut well, and also, you know, the other thing I, I like to point out is uh, you know, Kirk is, and Spock, they've done all of these jobs to get where they are on um, the rank they are. They've had to do all of this. So they've, um, you know, they both worked engineering, they've both worked uh, the sciences, they've done these things. Um, just like you see Chekhov who's obviously command and wears gold. Well it's a greenish gold. He goes over to Spock station and he does what he has to do because and Kirk was that at one point. Um so these these people are very good at their jobs um and they're very experienced. Um and it's, it's one of the um it always makes me uh um, a little nuts when somebody goes through the well there no there were no female starship captains which I don't believe is canon. I don't believe that's true. Um, And I love how competent Star Trek showed Uhura to be. She was trusted. She was, and by the way, she was at the helm on occasion. I mean, it was an emergency situation because that wasn't her normal post.
1: she never crashed the Enterprise, so.
2: That's right. But also, if somebody was going to do uh, uh, something that had to do with communications, she was the one that was doing it. I forget if it was Troublesome Minds or or this book, but I think she says at some point she's changed the uh, she's changed her system so much herself that leaving for someone else to repair it just wouldn't work because she's redesigned a lot of them. Um, I mean, yeah, these people are brilliant, um, and that goes for Kirk and Spock too. While while Kirk is supposed to be someone who who just goes by his gut, he clearly doesn't. Uh, One of the lines from the classic series that I love, I think it's the the Nomad episode, The Changeling, Um, Spock has this wonderful line where he says, "Um, your logic was impeccable, Captain. We are in grave danger. (laughs) So, you know, it's not like Kirk doesn't have that side of him, too. Um, And, you know, he figured this all out. Um, Although, you know, I hoped and you'll tell me you've read the book. um, I hope I didn't make it too vague in certain points. One of the things I wanted to do is Kirk went through this uh, discovery about, you know, who, who the Santique were and, and what happened and everything was, I didn't want him to know for sure. And there's a point at which he says, you know, maybe, maybe the Keynesians invented this or maybe they stole it. I don't know. And it's, I've never resolved it. And I, I, in my head, the Keynesians did develop it, but never went through with it because there was too much, you know, we might really screw something up and they were voted down against it. But, um, Kirk didn't know. And I didn't want him to know. That wasn't even necessary to the story for him or to the reader really, um, to know for sure. Um, and so, um, I didn't want everything to, I didn't want him to figure everything out. I only wanted him to figure out what he needed which I think he did, although he wouldn't have been able to without Spock being smart enough to uh, make the ship leak plasma. One of the things I really liked about Star Trek 2 was there's this awesome scene uh, where uh, the Reliant is coming and Kirk just says Spock and turns to him. And Spock has already turned to a scanner and he says scanning. So they don't have to tell each other things. They don't have to give orders to each other. And that's one of the things I sort of did in this book where there was a lot of unspoken orders between Kirk and Spock where they just know what the other is going to do um, because they're so good at working so well together. By the way, that's the other thing. people. You've been kind enough to say, you know, I get the characters right. Um, All I'm doing is copying what we've seen before, but making it just a little bit different or applying it to a different situation. You know, there's a lot of uh, fan films um, out there, and I've, I've, I've written for a fan film before, um, that uh, will take a line and duplicate it exactly, and that's not writing. But if you can get to the heart of whatever the feeling is behind a line and duplicate that, that's essentially what I'm doing. Mm. Um, in Troublesome Minds, I think uh, at some point McCoy calls Kirk James T. Christ, <laughs> uh, which is not anything that has ever been done in on screen. But I can see McCoy saying it. I mean, probably not in the 60s, because <laughs> that would not have worked.
1: It sounds like a curse. Um,
2: <laughs> well, he, yeah. he, uh, I think uh, Kirk was basically alluding to, hey, if you have to kill Burles to save Spock, let's just do that. I mean, he's not saying it, but he's sort of hinting hey, let's maybe, if we have to go this far, then we have to go this far. And and McCoy says, you know, uh, who's gonna decide who lives and who dies? Uh, James T. Christ? I mean, you know, he doesn't, it's not the captain's decision and McCoy would fight him on that. Um, and uh, I think that's the sort of thing, it's nothing you've seen before, but it, it it is because it's the same emotion that these people have shown us again and again as, as, as off their cuff.
0: Well, I think of the part where uh, Uhura is saying that she's on her fifth duty shift as Kirk dismisses, or third, yeah, as Kirk dismisses the ensign who's getting tired on his second. And like you say, that's not something we've seen on Star Trek, but it's totally an extension of her character. And the, the episode that Carolyn Palamas is from, Who Mourns for Adonis, you know, we see Uhura you know, under the communications panel, fixing things and stuff. And yeah, it's just a total extension of her character. And I thought moments like that were just done beautifully.
2: Thanks. Well, and you know what? She's fun. And uh, I, I sometimes get, I don't know if it's a knock or if sometimes they, this is, to me, Star Trek is really about Kirk, Spock and McCoy. And a lot of the other actors are, or the other characters, they're somewhat more minor. Although in a book, you can certainly give them more, But I don't want to do anything also that isn't going to move the plot along. By the way, before the editor um, suggested Carolyn Palamas, I had um, in the in the plot I had Uhura uh, working with Scotty, and the editor said, "Look, you don't have a budget like they did, (laughs) so your budget's unlimited. Um, Use." Why don't you use someone else, use Palamas and have Ahura be where she would be, which is on the bridge at her station that she knows so well, Um, which was really the right thing to do. So it's not this is why it's a collaboration, writers and editors um, and uh, uh, copy editors. And um, there's a lot of people that go into making this work. And uh, I certainly had a a lot of help and people making suggestions, all of whom are Star Trek fans and know Star Mm -hmm. Trek. I even have a, I have you know beta readers that will read the manuscript before I submit it, and um, one of them did not like uh, that uh, I had Carolyn Palamas looking for her boots because it was such a female thing, and from a female perspective, that's sort of belittling, and I, I think I changed it a little bit. That O'Hara said something like she, you're really not, I know you're really not worried about the boots, um, because she really wasn't. She was worried about everything else. She was worried about doing a good job for her captain. Um, by the way, she was hard to write for Palamas because she's in one episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so you don't necessarily see. I mean, we didn't see really much of her other than uh, uh, I think she she was on the bridge at the beginning of the episode. I'm not sure if she was at the end. I actually don't remember if there was an ending with her per se um, on the on the bridge back on the ship. Or if it just, I mean, she was kind of raped in that episode. It was, it was really sort of heavy for the day. I mean, they made it kind of clear without coming out and saying it. So she gets traumatized and I don't think we ever see her again. So maybe she left Starfleet or whatever after her. Scotty cannot cut a break with aliens sort of taking the women that he's interested in, whether it's the Zatar people (laughs) taking uh, um, that. What was her name? I forget.
0: Uh, Mira Romaine, yeah.
2: Mira Romaine, or uh, or or Apollo taking Carolyn Palamas,
0: or the ghost of Jack the Ripper, <laughs> totally up. Or with the his ghost life. of
2: yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, poor Scotty. No wonder he went to drink. It's
1: it's been a bad day for Scotty.
2: <laughs> he doesn't doesn't have any luck. <laughs> Kirk gets all the women, and he gets all the uh, all, all the all the people who are going to need psychiatrists later.
1: That and the tech manuals. <laughs>
2: That in the tech manuals. Um, uh, By the way, I think, uh, I hope I did Scotty uh, justice in this book. He was certainly in it a lot more. And, you know, there's a problem with Scotty in that you, in the movies he was made, uh, the later movies anyway, he was made almost the comic relief, probably from Star Trek, uh, Star Trek four on, maybe even three a little bit. Um, And... uh, You know, I didn't want him to slip into parody. um, And I I hope I didn't do that. He's, again, one of those characters that's a little hard to write for because people think of him as, she can't take any more. And, you know, um, the guy who's beaming you up and uh, the guy who drinks. And that's really unfair to him. If you watch the early, especially the early episodes, this guy has his stuff together um so i I tried to portray that i don't know how well it came off um but uh i really like scotty i don't would anybody anybody buy a scotty centric book though i'm not sure i don't know that sounds like i mean i would (laughs) be kind of cool you buy them all
0: yeah yeah No, I I did love the scene uh, when he was in engineering injured and still directing the damage control. I thought that professionalism and that dedication to his duty really came across there. And it really feels like the Scotty who reads the technical manuals on his off time.
2: And he worries about it all. And they're not as experienced as he is. So he's, you know, he's two steps ahead. Um, And one of I, I, I. I think this made the cut. You'll tell me if you remember it. Um, he hands uh, Palamas a tool and she starts to hand it back and he says, you're going to need it. And he tells her where this little cubby is mm-hmm. that yep. she can yep. stow it. So he doesn't have to be there to see it. And I think it was from her point of view. And she, she probably was surprised at that or something. I don't know. I forget if, yeah, it must've been from her point of view. Um, uh, I try to write a very tight point of view. So if, it's not first person, but if, if the scene is from Palamas' point of view, she can't see something that Scotty can't, that Scotty can see, and she can't. So, um, he could not see, uh, what, what she could see, but he knew where it was. Um, and, uh, I hope, I hope that, uh, I made it seem like the re that what you saw in the book was the reason that they would be friendly with each other later. Um, because it really does come out of the blue in the show. All of a sudden, here's this new person and he likes her. But I mean, that was 60s television too. You assume that they have met before. Little character bits. McCoy had to, to lose a patient in this one, um, which I think was sort of not, not something you would have sh- seen on the original show. But there are ways that you have to update it, I think. And him losing a patient is certainly... that's You know, that's not true. He would lose patience back then, but he would just say he's dead. And you wouldn't see you'd see Kirk deal with the emotion of losing a crewman, but you j- rarely saw McCoy deal with it. Um but you know it has to eat him up as much as it does Kirk. And I liked
1: McCoy getting mad. Like, where's the next patient? Let's go. Like you can tell he's taking it out by saying, Get me the next person in here so I can save him, damn it. Because right. I this is not happening again. More, maybe yep. this will hurt a exactly. little. Exactly. And a really nice just characterization there for him. And I liked that we got to have that scene because, you know, so many times we see McCoy on the bridge, and this was seeing an in his element where he is king, you know, and he's the one telling Jim Kirk, get the hell out of my OR. I'm busy. And no, you can't have yes. this. No, you can't do that. You know, he can tell the captain what to do here. Um, and I just really, really well done there because.
2: Although Kirk always has the last word. He said, unless you're injured, get out of my sick day. (laughs) And then Kirk holds up his wrist and shows his injury. Um, I I gotta say there are times I really wanted McCoy on the bridge, but it was sort of inappropriate to to have them there in the situation that they're in. But I think once I wanted him to comment on, uh, uh, Jolma. Kirk's bedside manner. I, I put the line in there, something like Kirk didn't even notice when he, when McCoy entered the bridge, like he just popped up out of nowhere. Um, cause I wanted him there out of nowhere. And I didn't really have a time for him to, I didn't want to say when he entered. And I thought, you know, if Kirk, it's Kirk's point of view. And if, if Kirk wouldn't notice when he entered the bridge, then that's okay to just do that. Um, again, I try to, I try to write that tight point of view so that, cause if you're, If I could write it from Kirk as first person, I wouldn't, but that is, I want to give people the impression that we're basically inside this person's head or that person's head. Um, And by the way, as readers, you'll have to tell me, um, did I make Jatan's confusion too confusing Um, with all of the little bits of dialogue of the voices that were within her? Because I thought, it's in her mind, it's happening in a split second, <laughs> but it might be a page and a half on the page. And I was afraid that it would seem like she was just sitting there glassy eyed for three minutes. <laughs> um, and and in one of the reviews, I saw somebody somebody said something like that. And I thought, yeah, that was I was afraid of that. Um, <clears throat> but at all of that, all of those little lines were happening just like that. So when she hesitated, it was. Like that, that pause, not mm-hmm. not her actually sitting there for for 23 seconds, just staring blankly at Spock or something like that.
0: Yeah, I think I think that came across fairly well. Um, I noticed and I don't know if this was your intention, but as the story went on and she kind of became more and more, I guess, unhinged, it seemed to kind of stretch longer. And I, I felt like that was on purpose, like that was
2: she was listening to them very early on. So the debates were far shorter, but they had to do more convincing. Um, and Tibbs, which wasn't actually a person. Um, I, I think I'm pretty sure I, I ended up making that very clear. Tibbs was a political movement. Um, and it was really just a bunch of party people who had, uh, at first a lot of them had gotten into her head and later, they sort of orchestrated things so that their party would be larger. Um, and, and so they were, they were more a philosophical movement than they were an actual person. But because this is a mental arena, they had sort of become their own collection of entities. I mean, Vulcan, Vulcanoid um, mental abilities were broken at this point. And they, all of these people were very, very broken, um, which I'm not sure it gave Spock necessarily the right to do what he did. Um, and I, I hope I didn't forgive him too much. Um, Kirk could forgive him, and Starfleet would forgive him, um, but I didn't, want it to, I didn't want Spock to have an easy time forgiving himself. Um, although he did leave, there, were, there, were, uh, there was one person who had two minds that were integrated, and he left that person alone. But he was also able to convince them sort of what was going on was wrong um i hope that wasn't a cop out Uh, but i wanted to show that not all of these people were insane and that it actually was possible to live with two for a vulcanoid to live with two katras in their head Um, somebody said that i had perhaps broken canon by having katras before star trek 3 i think that was on the track bbs but um, i was very careful that nobody ever said katra to anybody but Spock, or, or in the presence of Kirk and McCoy, or any any of the Starf, other Starfleet people, um, and there is a line in Star Trek Three. I had watched rewatched Star Trek Three before I, I started writing this, where Kirk says, "You're suffering from a Vulcan mind meld, Doctor," and without asking what he means, McCoy says, "That green blooded son of a bitch. It's his, it's his revenge for all those arguments he lost." So my feeling is is that he he knew what was going on as soon as there was no there was no time they didn't understand the process but once they did understand that spock had put his Kotra in mccoy's head they got it they didn't need a big explanation because they'd experienced it before that was that was the uh, retconning i had had in my head <laughs> whether it's a retcon or not i don't know but certain things you have to do to make the book work um you tell me as you guys have read it does it dovetail enough with uh troublesome minds that you buy spock wanting to really research culinar or does because i i I wanted to make it's the last line of the book i think or very close to it um and i wanted to make sure that uh it was not a left field for people
0: no it, it feels kind of like the uh the natural successor to that story uh there's definitely thematic links uh between the two especially with spock's experiences um and what he goes through and the conclusions he comes to definitely i felt that for sure
2: without a historian's note or something that says one takes place after the other i did try to link the two subtly um both books by the way start with a quote from john milton
0: Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, I had
2: hoped that was sort of a uh, sort of a clue too. Although Milton is really good for quotes about <laughs> almost anything you could imagine. Um, so the first one is about um, loneliness, and the second one is about uh, revenge. Um, but uh, one of the people who read the book before it was published um, said, "Wow, you really surprised me with the Colin R thing." I thought, and I thought, you know, I hope that people aren't going to see it as being uh, uh, out of left field, but it's, uh, and it's also nowhere near the end of where he would go back to Vulcan and do it. But I have to imagine Spock took years to come to this conclusion and decide to do what he was. I mean, this is not something you travel into lightly. Mm. Um, and, uh, I really do wish by the way that, uh, motion picture had explained what it was that sort of pushed him down that road. Um, I mean, I guess I've, it's given me an opportunity to explain it um, in a non-canon way. But um, as, a, as a kid, I remember, because I saw that movie when I was 9, 10. When did it come out? 80? I was 10 years old. Um, uh, 79. 79, I believe. Yeah. Okay, so I was 9 years old. Um, I, I wanted to know, and I remember asking my mom, because she took me to see the movie. I said, what happened to Spock? Why is he so mean? Because <laughs> to me, at the time he said he seemed—I mean, he wasn't being friendly to his friends. So you know, I whispered that to, to her in the theater when he refused to sit down. Um, in in Kirk's or uh, right.
0: Spock, would you please, please sit sit, yeah. sit down? <laughs> Shatner, nobody can deliver lines like he can. One thing I was kind of thinking of was, uh, you know, the the two major. TOS novels you've done kind of involve delving into telepathy and the psychology of the characters. And, you know, with Troublesome Minds, it was an alien whose thoughts subsumed the personalities of everyone around him. And again, like you said, without him even realizing what was happening. And with this novel, the idea of all these disparate voices kind of drowning out the true self, which kind of speaks to a lot of ideas in psychology and that kind of thing. And I was just kind of wondering what drew you to dealing with these you know kind of headspace ideas
2: that they were uh, um there's a line in a mash episode um about uh um anger turned inward is uh depression and uh i think anger turned outward is obviously anger and then of course in mash anger turned sideways is hawkeye um but uh um the, the idea was that these are two sides of the same coin um, and you can, Spock does not get uh, that he can sort of be himself. So he's got the one side of himself that wants to experience emotions, but can't let himself. And he's got this other side of himself that we more saw here that doesn't want to experience these emotions and doesn't want to feel the consequences of of his actions. Not doesn't want to live the consequences of his actions, but doesn't want to feel them. Um, So here's a desire to feel, and here's a desire not to feel. And it seemed like these were two good ways to sort of show both sides of that coin so that he can, so when he's thinking of Kolonar, he can say, yeah, it's not working for me on this side of the coin, and it's not working for me on this side of the coin. So I figure he had to, he had to convince himself that he wasn't getting anything from the emotions whatsoever. Um, to to say that he wanted to purge them, I um, mean, in fact, this was going to be a later story I may or may not do, and it just happened to end up being this one that 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 I ended up, you know, uh, CBS ended up saying, yeah, go with this one, and um, I hope it works. I will also say this from a a psychological perspective, Um, Spock is messed up. Um, And in fact, there is, um, I I wrote just for my own sort of fun, it'll never be filmed, but I wrote Troublesome Minds into an episode. So an actual 55 page script, Um, which when when you do that to see, to take what is a book and put it down into a script, means pairing things off that you don't need for the story, which as a writer is hard to do. So I wanted to sort of give myself that challenge. So the script exists um, and uh, I think it's okay. Uh, and it doesn't have a lot of what you saw in the book. The female character, God, I can't remember her name. Oh, that's horrible. It's my own character, the deaf woman.
0: Oh, I can't remember myself.
2: Oh, that's sad. Anyway, she's not in the in the script at all, and it's Spock who ends up taking that role. And uh, as Spock goes to the planet to stop Burles McCoy goes with him because Spock might still be under the influence. And McCoy has a line to um, uh, uh, to Spock in that uh, in that teleplay where he says something with the lines of, you know, you can be yourself and be happy. Spock says nothing in return, but the the line of direction to the actor, if it were ever going to be performed would be Spock is not so sure of that. Um, And I think, I think that's what is pushing him in this direction. He's really not sure if he can ever be content. Um, And I think after uh, the events in the motion picture, Spock realizes that he can be content. He can be logical, but he can also be emotional sometimes, somewhat. He doesn't have to act on it, but he, he Spock, I think, in his early years, makes the mistake of thinking what a lot of not true Star Trek fans, but sort of peripheral Star Trek fans think, that Vulcans don't have emotions. Well, they do. Um, and sometimes they bury them, but sometimes they just choose not to act on them, which is probably, I mean, it's 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 better for a lot of people if they don't act on some of their worst emotions. Um, and I think Spock goes from one extreme uh, to sort of, uh, well, he never goes to the other extreme, but he's afraid of the other extreme until he can sort of find a happy medium. Which, by the way, I don't know if anybody, uh, per, I'm sure other people have noticed this. I noticed in Star Trek too, he does not, he says things like, logic suggests, or were I to invoke logic? So logic for him later, when he applies it to, uh, you know, uh, not to something more subjective, becomes a suggestion to him. And I think that's Spock finding his balance that he doesn't have in the original series.
0: So rather than it being like his default, it's kind of more one of the two available options. That's, that's really cool.
2: I think he thinks. I think he's more thoughtful in in the mm-hmm. movies because he's older, he's wiser, and he's grown comfortable in his skin. I think he's very uncomfortable in his own skin in the original series. You see that as early on as uh, uh, the naked time, and uh, and and I really hoped in both uh, both novels to really portray that Spock is uncomfortable being Spock.
1: Well, and that's one of the things I love about the Undiscovered Country when he says to Valeris that, you know, logic is only the beginning of wisdom, you know, it's not the end. And I think that's one of the things that just uh, encapsulate that film because it was the full rounded growth period of that character so that when you left that film, it did feel like the finale for Spock. He had finally come to... A comfort level with who he is what his place in the universe was and um you know he's not fully human he's not fully vulcan he's something completely different yeah he's spock and and being spock as a unique being was okay and i love that you know it took it takes that long and going through death and back to life again to to get to that point it's uh yeah it's a really interesting um
2: one, one of art. my favorite lines is from that movie where he says to Valeris, I think it's uh, either before or after he slaps the phaser out of his hand, which was sort of a violent move. And I kind of like it. Um, he says, what you want is irrelevant. What you've chosen is at hand. And if I could tell that to my three and a half year old niece, <laughs> <laughs> and she would understand it, it is a true life lesson <clears throat> that at a certain point, It doesn't matter what we wanted to happen. This is what we chose. And he gets that now. Um, And uh, Leonard Nimoy was so good. You know, I appreciate the performances of other people who played Spock. Again, whether it's in a fan film or in the the newer movies. Um, And everybody brings their own uh, touch to it. But that character is Mm -hmm. so Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, rarely when an actor who I don't know as a person passes away, do I feel uh, such a deep sadness but his passing because i've so often been inside the head of that character as much as i can and that's his character mm-hmm. that's him yeah. there's so much of leonard nimoy in that i really was very sad when he passed away it was it was rough
0: yeah I hit a lot harder than than i e- even expected that particular death would uh, it really surprised me yeah and
2: and and i'm not uh, you know uh, Shatner is, um, uh, healthy, I guess, but, uh, you know, they're all getting up there at this point, <laughs> but those, those were the older, uh, uh, well, the two, the, the two oldest, uh, passed away first, uh, DeForest Kelly and uh, then, uh, and then James Doohan. And, uh, now they're, the, I guess the next tier is, uh, is up there in age and it's kind of scary. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it. I don't know why it should be scary, other than um, you spend so much time with these people in your head um, that uh, when they pass, you know, it's it's just sad.
1: I think it speaks to the impact that the Star Trek saga uh, has really had on us all, you know, and and um, and especially those TOS characters, because I think one of the unique things about TOS is that even today people can go back and with all of the things of the 60s they can still find something in there that resonates with them and that transcendent nature of what Star Trek was trying to say from then and then those original series films and those characters I think is universal their journeys their their issues um, and that again it's it's what I think draws us still to want to say read you know new Star Trek books because we want to see these characters um learn and overcome and it's it's a really cool thing and it doesn't happen for every sci-fi series out there. You know Star Trek is unique in that in that way.
2: Well, and that's that's one of the reasons why the newer movies were important to me because no matter what your takeaway from those movies was, if it got somebody who um wasn't that familiar with Star Trek. I mean, popular culture, you can be familiar with it. But if you wanted to know more about James Kirk or Spock, and you could go to Netflix and watch some of the original episodes, I think it turned some people on to the original series as it was in the 60s. My wife, by the way, had only ever seen a couple of Star Trek episodes, the original series. She has, she, she, you know, watched The Next Generation and she liked it. Okay. And I said, sit down with me, um, you know, soon after we were married and let's go through the episodes one by one. Um, And we went through it in production order. And by the time we got to the third season, she had petered out and she was like, I'm done. (laughs) I said, yeah, you and almost every other Star Trek fan. And I showed her just a handful of the good ones from the third season. Um, But uh, she said, I, I I like it now. I understand it, and I know why you're a fan of the. And I I I get it now. And we ended up, you know, watching the later movies. Um, and and she was she could really enjoy Star Trek the original series after that, despite the stats, despite you know some of the effects. Although I think we watched the remastered ones, so the effects were somewhat updated. And to be honest with you, um, uh, when you when you update the effects like that. It hold it does hold up better yeah I, I, think so I, too. I know there are some people who are purists um but I can see kids you know you can get over the push button and the the, the cheapness mm-hmm. of the sets because the drama is yeah. there and it's not going to be every episode but there are so many episodes that were mm-hmm. so very good mm-hmm. I mean otherwise I wouldn't be able to write one or two yeah. or three or how many ever <laughs> novels I couldn't because there wouldn't be there wouldn't be anything there to write about, which is why when people poo poo uh, any of the other versions of Star Trek, uh, um, all of which have had their faults here and there, um, you can find something to like because they're all Star Trek, and you can find something to grasp onto. And there has been depth in all of them, no matter right. what.
1: Definitely. By
2: the way, that includes even. Uh, when I saw Star Trek two thousand nine, I did still see some of the same characters. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I definitely. saw
2: some of the some some not different universe, so a slightly different take on them. But at this point, it's like Shakespeare. It's like one actor is going to play Othello in a totally different way, and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. It might not be my favorite actor f- for Othello, but still, you can get something out of it.
1: Definitely. No, I completely agree with you on on that uh, frame, and you know I think um, the cool thing was was those actors were able to find those those pieces a lot of times and bring out those characters and and to see those characters kind of transcend the actors who had played them before um, w- was great. And uh, I, for the most part, I really enjoy you know those films. There's obviously some some minor bits and pieces here where I'm like eh but on a whole it was it was Star Trek and, and I, I was like you I'm very glad that somebody might go home then and then be like oh I should finally check out all the Star Trek on Netflix that's fantastic so
2: and not everybody's gonna like yeah, it yeah no um, they're not but I'll be honest with you I didn't like the second movie as much as the mm-hmm. first Um, but that didn't mean that there weren't things to like about it actually I assume you've both seen mm-hmm. it um, oh yeah. I thought Um, Pike's death was actually sort of a brave choice for the writers to make and I thought it was a pretty sort of heart-wrenching scene Um, and it was new and that's one of the reasons I liked it and to hear um, uh, uh, them talking about going off in another direction and not recycling a script um, I I really appreciate that. Let Do something new and it might be it might be the best Star Trek movie ever. I mean, yeah. you really don't know. Yeah.
1: It's so true.
2: And and yeah. I understand there are people who don't like the sets. Some of the sets I don't like either, but you know what? I, I don't like some of the sets from the original series. I mean, that's not... <laughs> um, I, 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 One of the things that Diane Carey said to me early on when she was sort of coaching me on, on, on how to write... Um, was that Star Trek could be done against a black curtain and you wouldn't care. And in fact, it almost was like Spectre of the Gun. I mean...
0: Or the Empath,
2: yeah. Or or the Empath. Um, And the drama was there because the characters were there. So how the uniforms look, uh, whether it's my taste or not, to a lesser degree is a big who cares um, what I care about is is the drama that's that's on the page and the characters being being right and good. And so long as they get that right in the next movie, I will be, you know pleased as punch, and that it might look like an iPhone store for a bridge. <laughs> you know we just we just got a new house, and everything looks not dated in it, you know, the kitchen and everything. And it's to our style, and we like it. And I said to my wife, I said, and in 10 or 15 years, yeah. this is going to look <laughs> yeah. old.
0: yeah,
2: Because <laughs> that's the way it looks. So true. By the way, I've been on an exact recreation of the sets. Um, uh, uh, Star Trek uh, Phase 2, or New Voyages, whichever it's going by right now, which is a, a, a fan film series produced by James Cawley. Um The sets are exact. The man has them to like museum perfection to where he's, looked at screenshots to make sure the buttons are in the right place and the slope of the, from the blueprints and everything. And they're very small, um, smaller than you would think watching them on TV. And they are, you know, plywood um, cause they're exactly painted, you know, they're exactly like they were in the original series. Um, and yet, and if you ever watch by the way, and you will see if Uhura's chair is out and someone is going by her seat, they will turn sideways yes, yep, to get by yep. because they have to, because that's how small the bridge is. And the main view screen is, you know, about as big as, you know, my 52-inch TV screen. Um, but having been on that, uh, and by the way, I, I said this doesn't look like sickbay. Uh, and he took me by my shoulders, and he moved me to where the camera sits. And all of a sudden I was in sick bay and I was like, wow. Yeah. So when I write about... Um, what's happening on the ship. Um, the, the best experience I've ever had is to actually be on it. I mean, it's not flying through space, but you're on that ship uh, because it, the sets are the same. So you're where essentially the actor stood, um, you know, on a one-to-one scale because some of the recreations you see are not true to scale. Um, uh, but it really helps in writing because you're actually able to sort of, I know how many steps it is from Kirk's command chair to Spock station, and it is fewer than you think. (laughs) Um, And I had the chance to measure all of that out. Um, So when someone is right besides Kirk's chair, he's also really almost right beside that rail. Um, It's one step either way um, because, you know, they had to build everything on a budget and also – you don't need a whole lot of space. The camera makes it look much bigger than it is. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and, and and that was the best experience. So if I get my staging right in the books, it's because I've actually been on the ship. Which, by the way, if you ever have a chance to go to one of these set recreations, that oh, I think there so are like fun. three or four, uh, go to one of them. And and uh, James Collie's actually, they have a, a CD of the, the bridge noise sound that they will play for you. Um, and once everything is all lit up and you enter through the, because his is an actual circular bridge, they don't pull out any of the pie, um, you know, to film, uh, they used to pull out two or three sections and and some of the bridge that they've recreated in other places, they don't have the full 360, but this is the 360 and you enter through the turbo lift. So someone moves a lever, the door is open you walk onto the bridge it's all lit up and it sounds just like the bridge mm, that's cool i swear to you it is it is an experience worth having
0: <laughs> that's awesome oh man every Trekkie's dream yeah. that would be
2: that would be excellent <laughs> it, well, i well i think they're actually going to have a convention in the fall um uh, uh, uh in Ticonderoga where the sets are and and you'll be able to uh, to tour the sets ah oh, that's whether awesome whether you get to sit in the captain's chair or not i don't
0: know <laughs> but <laughs> get your picture taken there marking my calendar as we speak
2: <laughs> it's it's actually um it, it is it is one of the weirdest experiences um is to visit to be to seem like you're on on the ship because you spend so much again you spend so much time there in your head um it's not even it's better than meeting it's, I shouldn't say it's better it's different than meeting one of the actors because the actors an actor playing a part but that ship is actually i mean that set is actually the ship it's where they filmed you know for the most part obviously not the exact same one but built to the same specifications you can't tell them apart
1: yeah that's awesome well before we let you go tell everybody um, where they can find you online and then uh, maybe what you have coming up um, or other things that you have in the works or things of yours that they need to be aware of that they need to be out there getting their hands on
2: uh, you know uh, well I'm, I'm, I'm on I'm readily available online because I'm at Facebook. And I, I, pretty much friend anybody who, um, you know, doesn't look like a bot. Um, <laughs> uh, so under at Dave Gallanter, I don't know if there's a. It, you just, you'll you'll see Star Trek related with me on Facebook. So you'll see Dave Gallanter. I mean Dave dot on uh, Twitter at Dave Gallanter. No no dot. I'm, I feel ashamed for not That's knowing okay. that. But it is it is close to my bedtime. Uh, what I'm doing right now. Um, is uh, waiting to hear about a project I can't talk about that's not Star Trek related. Um, and um, next time I get a uh, what I feel is a, a really good idea for a Star Trek novel, I'll pitch it to the editor. Um, but I don't like to do that unless I really have something. Yeah. And you know, and what I end up doing is I'll first ask them, uh, you know, do you have any openings? And then I'll go and and sort of work on an idea because I don't want to just um, it's not my full-time job. It's not my main job. I mean, I have, I'm a, a senior systems engineer, so it's not my day job. I do this in my evenings and weekends and stuff. Um, uh, so it's, it's less about the money. Um, I am also working on a, uh, a sort of a science fiction uh, book that I haven't sold to anybody yet, but I have to work out the plot in my head um, that is detective-ish novel, but, Time travel related.
1: Oh, cool.
2: Um, So there's some science fiction, definitely some science fiction elements and some time. I've always wanted to write a detective novel. Um, The unfortunate thing about writing a detective novel is it's so different from writing a Star Trek novel because a detective novel can meander less than a Star Trek novel can. Uh, When I write a Star Trek novel, I probably have, you know, 12 or 15 pages of plot. And you have to be way more detailed in detective novel because you yes, have to lead people yeah. down a path so that they know, you know, uh, 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 you don't want them to know it before your detective or he's stupid. Um, but you, you don't want them uh, to know it. To, you don't want to drop the mystery on them and say, aren't you stupid? You should have known this. Mm-hmm. You want them and the detective to reach it at the same point. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with exactly how to do that and mix in all the science fiction elements because, you know, some of it takes place 4,000 years in the future. I think that's it right now. Cause I can't, there are certain things I'm working on. I can't talk about until, um, a contract is signed. Um, but hopefully, I mean, I would announce it once it's, it's, uh, on, on Facebook or on, uh, on Twitter once, once a no. and I know. And I think I have uh, Google plus as well, but I never go there
1: well thank you uh so much for joining us Uh, i really enjoyed the book and i personally can't wait to go back and read troublesome minds now and um i appreciate you giving us the time to kind of hear the behind the scenes that's the most fun about doing this show is getting the behind the scenes with the authors and how they think about star trek and it adds so much to my enjoyment of the stories as we get to read them so
2: Thank you guys for yeah, yeah. being interested. Cause I'll tell you that, uh, you know, um, I believe it or not every day since the book has come out, you know, I'll do a Google search and see what someone is thinking about it because we work with the book for so many mm-hmm. months and we don't know if we're going to get it right or not. And I've seen some valid criticism. I've seen someone who, uh, said that unfortunately,
0: that Spock shouldn't use (laughs) contraction. I saw that review too. And I just wanted to say, no, no, you've got it all wrong. (laughs) So there's pluses and minuses to
2: looking at reviews. Um, And I've seen that a lot of people have, have enjoyed the book. Um, And that's gratifying because until somebody reads it and tells me, I don't know. And one of the things is when people read it and say, Hey, I got this out of it, or I didn't get this out of it. And you missed the mark. You guys are the audience, you know, better than I, quite frankly, Cause I only know one person's opinion while I'm writing it and uh, what's cool for me might not be cool for you. So when you guys say you read it and it was cool for you too um, you know, that really makes it worthwhile. So I appreciate it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was, it was a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me guys. Have a good night. Wow. Matthew, that was a really excellent conversation uh, with, Dave Gallanter about his new novel. You know, I really love these, these uh, author interviews. It really gives us a chance to get inside the head of the writers as they're creating, you know, wonderful stories in this fictional universe we love.
1: Well, and I think one of the most exciting things about it, Dan, is that, you know, each of these authors has a different way of approaching these characters. And I think that's what makes the books, for the most part, so enjoyable to read is that we're getting different takes on the characters and it does feel like we're getting something new and that's what's so exciting and it really does help when you have a story of this magnitude. I mean, honestly, we could have talked to Dave, I think, for another hour and a half, two hours probably because there were some great themes in this book that we didn't even get to cover with him. I mean, just fantastic ideas that you're pulling from this novel just as all great Star Trek stories do. So, yeah, this is a fantastic. Uh, Star Trek book, I I do recommend it. I think it's it's really uh, worth reading, especially you know adding something new to these characters TOS-wise. That's great. Definitely. Five out of five multiple personalities from me. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. Uh, For a while uh, reading the book, it was a little bit like having homicidal multiple personality disorder trill, like the (laughs) ultimate multiple personality disorder for a trill. Like if a trill had been passed down, you know, hundreds of times, Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I was feeling with this. And they didn't have an idea of how to deal with it. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, This is definitely worth you picking up. For sure. Multiple personality orders is not the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM today. Here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network.
0: Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. And I think it was a very anticlimactic... for a lot of people because they were expecting me to to do, you know, my rah and ranting thing but instead I just was like oh, that's depressing. Okay, bye. Earl Grey. They've now shifted into the Biff-controlled 1985. Who got a hold of the Almanac in order to turn yesterday's Enterprise? The Enterprise C is the DeLorean in this scenario. The Orb. I'd like to see the Borg assimilate Feringonar and then they would become bankers. You know, I could see... Oh my gosh, I could see bankers. drones. Yeah, yeah. The, the world's strictest bank ever. Right. I'm sorry, you have not paid your loan. You will be assimilated. <laughs> the nanites go into you. Yes. <laughs> to the journey! I, I, I kind of want something with a little bit more teeth. For some okay. reason, like, like starting a garden just doesn't scream mirror universe to me. <laughs> starting
1: a garden doesn't have teeth. <laughs>
0: The ready room. I hate to put it this way, but maybe in, in some strange, twisted, logical sense, if Archer just kind of flew on by and didn't help the colonists, the Enterprise D would have never crash landed on Viridian 3. So it's not Troy's fault. It's Captain Archer's fault. Literary Treks.
1: This is, this is something that doesn't get done a lot in books because I don't think the time period is supposed to be that long Mm -hmm. but what did you end up thinking about having a story take place before where no man's gone before
0: well I thought personally that it was really cool the 602 club my
1: two favorite scenes in the film are Cap saying language (laughs) and then the rest of what the jokes that go with that and then Cap moving the hammer just enough then thor's face when he can't pick it up is
0: priceless and that's what else is happening on trek.fm
1: guys check out these shows find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the star trek universe and of course beyond you know these days you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts um if you have a passion for star trek books and would love to help us share that with others. There's a few things you can do. You can hit that subscribe button in iTunes. You can also give us a star rating and review. Both of those things really help us rise in the iTunes rankings. And it just really makes it easier for people to find us when they're searching for us. It also makes us more visible. So people searching in iTunes say, oh, that looks interesting. Books and comics of Star Trek, I want to listen to that. Now, if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. And of course, all of those places, so many of them have amazing ways to be able to share our content, rate and review them or like them to help other people be able to find us on those platforms. If you love what we do consider becoming a patron of the network on Patreon. We are a listener-supported network. Um, We do this all on a volunteer basis, and so if you'd like to find out more how you can help us, you can go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you'll find all the current goals that we have that we're trying to reach, the milestone contribution levels that we have, and there's some great perks. You get early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit seats on the content development team, and just so much more. We so appreciate all of your help, and we hope that you'll join the team. You can find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail. Look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. We're at the Babel Conference, which is the best place to have a Star Trek discussion or any of the other discussions we have on the Babel Conference these days because of the 602 Club. Just type Babel Conference into the search field on Facebook, or you can make it easy on yourself by going to the website at Trek.fm and click Discussion on the menu bar. We also have a group on Goodreads. Um, You can find us there on Goodreads, and we have our bookshelves with the previously covered books as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows, and some great conversations happening about the books and comics. Guys, want to say thank you. We've had two great new five-star reviews on iTunes. Fantastic. Thank you so much to Aslan16 and Ken Tripp for their reviews. We appreciate you both so much for helping spread the passion for Star Trek books. We have our associate producers, Will Wynn, who's on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn. And now, of course, he is the host, the co-host of Warp 5 with Norman Lau. And then we've got Ken Tripp, and we'd like to thank you both for your support and being an associate producer here on Literary Treks. Now, Dan, when you're not trying to figure out who in your mind is talking to you because you've got so many voices going back and forth, where can we
0: find you? Who said that? Oh, sorry, Matthew. Yes. Uh, well, you can find me <laughs> online. Um, my website is www.treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. Uh, I'm on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash And I'm on Twitter, at and my personal Twitter feed, at Kertrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, where you can see Instagrammed photos of trees and other things like that. And Matthew, uh, when you're not powering through your third duty shift and showing up the junior officers, where can we find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. You can also find me on the 602 Club, where we pick a great new geeky topic each week and just talk about that so this last week it was so much fun we talked about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe film that came out in 2006 so that was a blast and of course you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com Well thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on
2: You call that light reading?
1: To each his own, number one